and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. I had a previous episode all set to go for episode 82 on uh, Hollywood algorithms and the search for the perfect screenplay and and perfect film by using AI uh, to do as much. And again, we can get into that another time. Uh, because an interesting conversation popped up online. I don't know if you follow. Uh, she calls herself Dame Taft. Uh, she is from the Jaws world online from what I call Twitter Jaws. And uh, she's Select Woman Taft. And uh, I love Select Woman Taft's take on film. And I keep saying all the time that uh, she should have her own reviews. And a subject came up, a hashtag game started on Uh, Movie errors that bug me, I think is what it was. Hashtag movie errors that bug me, something like that. I use some visuals, uh, you know, stills from movies and and such, which I'll get into for this podcast. And uh, Dane Taft uh, came back and she commented on something. Uh, One of them in particular was uh, Jodie Foster and Julianne Moore and swapping out Jodie Foster with Julianne Moore for Hannibal, uh, the sequel to Silence of the Lambs. And I felt that it is an error. And Dane Taft came back saying that while I guess she could understand that, it's really about artistic expression and and seeing a a different actor give their own spin or translation of of a character, which is the joy of acting. I couldn't agree more. But for me, uh, I want to tackle something here in this episode that looks at a number of these things, which got me thinking. So while I really enjoyed the views expressed in this whole interchange back and forth, I didn't want to build the podcast around that, but actually it got me thinking uh, to looking at some things and for you to decide as listeners, were these errors or were these cynical cash grabs just to perpetuate a franchise or in some cases they ran a franchise into the ground? I mean, why does there seem to be a conscious effort at times to derail a franchise or ignore clear plot points that fans understand and accept as canon? And and the reason why I'm focusing on this today is we now have movie franchises that are built specifically on details in canon that were laid out in the previous films. And now what you start to see are these new films, new installments, whatever they may be, sequels or even prequels that kind of ignore some pretty important plot points that were laid out. I mean, the goal of Hollywood lately, especially in the Marvel and DC universes, is to establish canon. We see how Lucas was and and how he jealously protected canon when Disney bought the Star Wars franchise. I mean, Disney expelled so much content and they, they deemed what was canon and what was not. I mean, whole book series and everything were jettisoned. And they sat down, and I believe there you can find it online, they actually made a, a timeline or a kind of uh, canon official universe where they say these things count toward the official Star Wars narrative, and these things, even though they might have once, no longer do. Now, is that an error? Is, is that going in and messing with fan expectation? Because here's the other thing. Fans have become so ingrained into these franchises that, for example, the new Disney Star Wars films and such, people go, you know, there's a real problem with this because they're making these movies for the fans. They're not making them for general audiences to enjoy. So the argument could be is that episode four, Star Wars, that's the actual title, not A New Hope. I know that that's what it's become since. 
But Star Wars was created to entertain a wide, very varied audience. And now the problem is, is that the new Star Wars films under Disney are made to please fans. And you can see this even in those ridiculous, and yes, they are embarrassing fan reactions to trailers and such where people are openly crying. Grown men are weeping uncontrollably because they saw the Millennium Falcon or things like that. And I did a previous podcast on this on how fandom has ruined a number of franchises and also ruined the movie going experience. While I hang on to Star Wars for a moment, I mean, mistakes or errors are things, I guess, like why R2-D2 can fly in the prequels and he can show all kinds of amazing abilities, yet he was so limited in the original trilogy, which takes place after those films. I mean, for example, in The Empire Strikes Back when R2 falls off the X-Wing into the swamp on Dagobah, why didn't he just fly out of the swamp? Why does he move along and his little uh, periscope thing comes up out of the fog? Why didn't he just fly like he could? I believe it was in Attack of the Clones. Is replacing Sebastian Shaw as the original Anakin, that's the guy I saw at the end of Return of the Jedi when Luke took off the helmet. We saw a much older man. And even though I was kind of surprised that's what Darth Vader looked like because at the time I remember as a kid thinking, and most of you don't even know who this actor was, but I thought, why does Darth Vader look like James Coco, the actor? But... Then at the very end, when you see Luke looking out and and Ben Kenobi and Yoda and Anakin are standing there, it was the actor Sebastian Shaw. And yet now Lucas turned around just before he sold off Star Wars and replaced Sebastian Shaw with Hayden Christensen. Is that an error? Does that constitute good filmmaking or is it just to placate fans and keep the merchandise moving? Is the adding of another No. At the end of Return of the Jedi, when Vader picks up the Emperor and throws him off the platform, just so you know, when you saw this in theaters, Vader said nothing. There was no cheesy no. And I don't know why he did this, because also it it didn't work out in Revenge of the Sith either when Vader yells no. I mean, the audience laughed unintentionally. And now we have it at the end of Return of the Jedi. It doesn't make the scene any more dramatic. It doesn't hype up anything. In fact, it was far better that Darth Vader said nothing when he picked up Palpatine and chucked him off the platform. So is that a mistake? Does that constitute a mistake? Is that an error that bugs us? Well, let's go a little further and and get out of Star Wars and all of that stuff because, again, these are franchises that the fans have just so picked apart that it's become almost, well, it really has. It's become a punchline. Let's look at the Exorcist franchise and really should have never been a franchise in the first place. It should have just been left alone as a standalone film, but it made money. So with it making money, there had to be a sequel. And Exorcist 2, The Heretic, is considered not only one of the worst sequels of all time, but it's up there with one of the worst movies of all time. And you can read the history on how that movie got made. I've seen that film now, I think, three or four times, and why would I waste my time on it? Because I keep going back wondering, just what the hell is this movie about? I know there are a lot of locusts in it. And I watch it, and could a whole movie actually constitute an error? the exorcist you have a couple stories going on and in in the b story you have lee j cobb who played uh, detective kinderman 
and he's trying to find out who killed Burke Dennings, the, the movie director that fell out of Linda Blair's window and was found at the bottom of the steps with his head turned all the way around. So you have this very small detective story going on as well, too. And he does happen to cross paths with Jason Miller's father, Karis. And I think throughout the whole film, they might have one, maybe two scenes, but I, I believe it's one scene where they, they get together, they talk, and uh, Cobb invites uh, Miller to a movie. And that's really it. Now, as I said, there was an Exorcist too, and pretty much all of Hollywood just wants to forget about that one. But there was an Exorcist three. It was originally supposed to be called Legion, but the studios, to make sure that the audience connected the dots, they made sure that Exorcist three was above that title. That also worked against the film because unfortunately, Exorcist three invoked Exorcist 2 and people remembered what a shitty film that was and a lot of them stayed away. In fact, William Peter Blatty, who wrote the original novel and then the screenplay and directed Exorcist 3, had warned people about that. He had warned the studios and said, please don't stick Exorcist 3 on the title because people are going to think of the second one and how awful it was. They didn't listen. They stuck on Exorcist 3 above the title and when the movie started to wane and did not do what they had hoped, uh, Blatty said he got a call from someone at the studio that said, you know, just so you know, uh, the movie's not going to end up doing all that well. We think it's because of the Exorcist 3 part of the title. And Blatty said when he got off the phone, he was like, didn't I just warn you people about all of this? That is what I said, right? I understand that they had to recast Lee J. Cobb, uh, who played Detective Kinderman from The Exorcist, because... Lee J. Cobb died in between uh, The Exorcist and Exorcist 3, so you can't bring him back. So my question is, instead of recasting him, which I understand, as Select Woman Taft says, that can be a cool thing. They ended up getting George C. Scott. He came back in. Uh, he brought his own pinache to the role and, and really, I think, did a fantastic job. So that's where I stand with Select Woman Taft. Uh, however, I don't understand why he had to recast it at all why not just make it a different detective? Because here's why. They make sure in really the opening of the film, uh, George C. Scott's Kinderman makes it very clear that he and Damien Karras were best friends. He says that he was my best friend. I don't see any evidence of that. When did that happen? Karras dies not long after their meeting in the original Exorcist film, how did they forge a best friendship in that brief amount of time? And there's even a photo that they use of Jason Miller with Kinderman uh, together. It looks like you know they went running or jogging or something together and, and they got their arm around each other. And it's like, I get it, but I don't ever remember those events happening. And is that really something that furthers the narrative? Is that creative license? Or is it just an outright error? I mean, William Peter Blatty wrote the screenplay for the original Exorcist. Didn't he think about that? And didn't it cross his mind? Or was studio pressure applied to say, no, you got to make it the same detective from the end of the first film? It's kind of a mistake. Now, I will admit, I love George C. Scott far better than Lee J. Cobb in the role. So I see exactly what Select Woman Taft is saying about this. Putting Scott into the role actually makes it work. However, the change of parameters of the plot with Cobb and Miller being best friends, 
that's a stretch. Now, the same could go also, and anybody listening, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that Ed Flanders' priest in the film was also supposed to be the same priest at the end of the exorcist that Linda Blair gives the medallion to. Uh, Two very different looking men, very bizarre thing. And I guess what it's, it's a small little thing. I guess you could say these are one of the movie errors that bug me if it is indeed an error. However, why continue that? Why not just make it that Ed Flanders was another priest? Why does he have to be the same one? So now before you get into all this and go, well, again, it's artistic license and, you know, really replacing a character with another actor isn't a terrible thing. And I'm not saying it always is. But let's go to J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot. Here you have different characters playing the iconic ones. And for me, it all worked. Overall, perhaps the most miscast was Chekhov, who bore no resemblance to the other Chekhov from the other parallel storyline. But I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. I really enjoyed J.J. Abrams' reboot of Star Trek. They brought in Nimoy to continue the storyline from the original, and it rolled over, and overall, it really, really worked. And Chris Pine's Kirk was fantastic, and a big shout-out to someone who really doesn't get all the the props that that they deserve is Carl Urban's Dr. McCoy. Uh, He was fantastic, so I, I really enjoyed it. Simon Pegg as Scotty? Yeah, I guess. I mean, you look at the young Scotty from the TV series, And I could see that. I mean, the hair color varies, but these are all small little quibblings. So I'm not going to really get too hung up on that. Where I will say the problem was in casting, and here is where it comes, where this is an error. This is not an actor just simply giving their interpretation of the role. And that is Benedict Cumberbatch as Khan. There's your problem. And why? Because, again, you get fans going, I've done a previous podcast on this about remakes and uh, repackagings and reimaginings and all of that nonsense. They went through a lot to pull what I feel is a screenwriting and cinema hat trick. They were able to take the same storyline, reboot it into the same universe, and give you all new interpretations of iconic characters, and they made it all work. That whole new franchise, they breathed life back into the old one. This whole new franchise was ready to take off and boldly go where the series had not gone before. And instead, after doing such a great job and such writing mastery in that first one, they turn around in Star Trek Into Darkness and they fucking remake The Wrath of Khan. Come on. Talk about lazy filmmaking and screenwriting. So here's what fans will say. Well, you see, it's an alternative universe. So, you know, people can look different in that universe. Fine. But then why did they go through the trouble to make sure that Carl Urban, uh, that Chris Pine, all of them bore resemblance to Shatner, DeForest Kelly, and all these others. Again, Chekhov is the only one. But they even went to make sure that Sulu remained Asian. Now, I know one was Japanese and the other is Korean, and people quibbled over that one. I'm still willing to take care of that, but Uhura is still African-American. Switching to a parallel universe doesn't change ethnicity, and it doesn't change sex. 
So what happened, and you can listen to my previous podcast on this, is that I believe they originally had Benicio Del Toro to play Khan. So they had someone of Latin, what he's supposed to be Middle Eastern Persian descent, really, but Ricardo Montalban's background, they had someone resemble Montalban. They kept that flavor of ethnicity. Then something happened and Del Toro left the project. Well, when he left the project, a lot of people went, aha, Abrams is making a technically Star Trek II. That was Khan. They're bringing back Khan. So J.J. Abrams has a formula, which I've said on here a number of times. And the formula is, no, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, it is. So J.J. Abrams turned on the PR machine and deny, deny, deny. It's not Khan. It's not Khan. It's not Khan. And in the end, okay, it's Khan. So they basically redid the Wrath of Khan and Space Seed, combined them together. So he went through all this work and to throw you off the scent, they cast an English guy, okay? They cast a Caucasian guy because nobody would think that Cumberbatch would be Khan. And there's where I have the problem. That is not only an error, it is a total disregard of canon and filmmaking, and it's a cheat. Because if you're going to say, well, no, they could do that, Khan could be very different in the parallel universe, then make Kirk a woman. Or make Sulu Irish. Change the ethnicities. You notice they didn't do that. Chekhov was still Russian. Why is Khan suddenly Caucasian? And I can tell you why. It was a cynical ploy to throw the audience and the press off of a plot leak. Parallel universes don't change race or ethnicity. These franchises are based on canon. And Star Trek is a well-established franchise with a long history. You can't just change things to suit the promotion of the film and to surprise the audience because your secret got out. So therefore, that is a major error. You could go back to the original Wrath of Khan. Does this constitute an error here? But in Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan, when Khan unveils himself and we realize that this is Ricardo Montalban's Khan and they're on this planet where Kirk had dumped them in, in the original TV series. He walks over to Chekhov and he says, you, I never forget a face. Mr. Chekhov, isn't it? Now here's the problem. Chekhov was not part of the show at that time. So of all the characters to bring in, they bring in Walter Koenig to be the bridge to Khan to let the audience know, oh, they have a history here. But why would you pick a guy that was never in the other one? And you have to leave it up to fans then to make all kinds of excuses for the writer. And that is, oh, well, you know, they could have met in between. Uh, Chekhov could have been on the ship and we just didn't see it. There were a lot of things going on in that episode. It's very possible that they all just connected that way and we just never got to see it. Why do that in the first place? Why didn't you just have it that it was someone else or it was Captain Terrell? Why couldn't it have been somebody else? Why did it have to be Chekhov? And again, is that an error or is it just sloppy writing or is it something that we just shake off? So continuing in the Star Trek universe, I want to go to the whole Kirstie Alley or Robin Curtis Savick interpretation. So you can't force an actor to return to a role. I couldn't agree more. Right, you can't force an actor to return. Apparently, from what I understand, the money wasn't there for uh, Allie to bite, so she left. She did not return as Savick. 
And that's a shame because really I preferred her Savick over Robin Curtis's. Nothing wrong with Robin Curtis, but here's my point. Why make Robin Curtis Savick at all? Why not just make her an all-new Vulcan? And just so you know, they were considering a bringing Robin Curtis back to the undiscovered country in, in Star Trek VI, and they thought of the idea that maybe if they couldn't get Curtis, Kim Cattrall would play Savick. So we would have three actresses playing the same role. They got smart in Star Trek VI and just made it an all-new character, Lieutenant Valeris. So that makes sense. Why couldn't Robin Curtis just simply be another female Vulcan or even one with a better background story and connection uh, to Spock? Instead, we are to go, for, I, I still remember this. When you see Robin Curtis on the uh, USS Grissom in the opening of Star Trek III, I was like, who is that? I had no idea that was supposed to be Savick until the captain of the ship telegraphs that to us and says, Lieutenant Savick or Commander Savick, whatever. It's like, oh, oh, that's Savick? Oh, I, I guess, you know, Kirstie Alley didn't return. And then you're taken out of the moment. You see, that's the problem. You're so totally taken out of this moment. And so therefore, that's why I classified the casting of Robin Curtis as the same character an error. Look, in the end, I get it. It's just a film. And it's just a new actor playing the same character. But that doesn't mean it always works. And, and the nice, you know, thoughts behind it of, well, it's just another actor bringing, uh, you know, their take to a role. I get that too. But when you have these series of films that are so dependent upon canon and strict detail, sometimes that's not a good thing. And that's where I roll right into the final Star Trek ragging, and that is uh, the death of Kirk in Star Trek VII Generations. And there are a lot of errors in canon concerning both Kirk's life and death. And I went over that in one of my episodes called Kirk, Picard, or Cinema. So the big thing in, in Star Trek Generations and Star Trek VII, Leonard Nimoy didn't want to return. And, and I've covered this in my previous podcast, so I don't want to get into so much detail. But they brought on the ones that would return. And that was you got Chekhov and you got Scotty and you got Kirk. And, and that was really it. That's who they brought on for Star Trek VII. McCoy wasn't there and, and DeForest Kelly's health and everything was kind of out of it. But he also said the same thing basically that Leonard Nimoy did when they read the script. The script isn't good. And there's just nothing here for us to do. And we're not going to do it. That's why there's an artifact in the dialogue on the bridge of the Enterprise B. When Chekhov turns around and goes, you, 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 and you, you you're all nurses. You've all been drafted. Come to sickbay. That should have been Dr. McCoy's line. Why is Chekhov taking people to sickbay? Don't they have a medical science officer? Don't they have somebody there that could do this? That's why they did it. Because really Chekhov had McCoy's lines. And Scotty had Spock's lines. So already you have a major error and you're starting your movie out on very, very shaky ground. Star Trek 2, 3, 4, all and 6, all really went into detail of Kirk's relationship with his son, David. And in Star Trek 7, all of that is thrown out the window. And at the very end, instead of Kirk going out in a gigantic blaze of glory, Kind of like how Data went out 
in uh, Nemesis, which why they didn't give Kirk this kind of ending, they resort to first, they had two endings. One, Kirk got shot in the back by Malcolm McDowell. And then in the second one, because of audience test reaction, uh, they throw him off a bridge. And that's supposed to be so much more fitting of the great Captain Kirk. And again, you can go back to my previous episode on that and hear my entire rantings about it. But to me, Star Trek VII, out of all of them so far, aside from Into Darkness, counts as a full-blown theatrical length error. All efforts at the previous canon were kicked out because of lazy writing and directing. And you know what? Perhaps major franchises are not where we should be seeing such experimentation when they are so fan-based and they have evolved into that. For example, in Psycho 2, when they decided they were going to make a Psycho 2, they came back to Anthony Perkins and they said, we want you to reprise the role of Norman Bates. And Perkins, who felt he had been typecast as Norman Bates, although I don't really see where it hurt his career, said no at first. And their attitude was, just so you know, Tony, we're going to make this thing whether you're in it or not. And the word is they went to Christopher Walken to return as Norman Bates. Now, would the film have done as well? Probably not. And Hollywood has no problem with the just because you can doesn't mean you should because they will. Just because you can, they will. And A Psycho 2 was on the books. Slasher movies were high, horror was back, and they wanted to bring back Psycho. Perkins finally relented. And he came back as Norman Bates because he knew that was going to be somebody else up there in the role that I made and helped make me famous. And that's another part of recasting. When you find an actor that is so that role, which is rolling me then right into the silence of the lambs. When you look at that actor and any other thing you think, that's that person. For example, the defining role for me for Louise Fletcher will always be Nurse Ratched. No matter what she's in, forever she will be Nurse Ratched. And I don't know what Jack Nicholson will be for all of you. For some, he will always be the Joker. And for others, he may be Jack Torrance from The Shining. That's how definitive those roles are. And again, you can recast them. For example, in Doctor Sleep, they did recast those roles because Mike Flanagan felt bringing back Jack Nicholson just might be a distraction. And they could have done it. They could have brought Jack back. They could have de-aged him with digital technology that might have taken everybody out of the movie. So there is no firm science to this. Recasting an iconic role such as James T. Kirk can be done. And we saw that it could be done. Chris Pine's Captain Kirk is fantastic. And that's why I argue that replacing Jodie Foster with Julianne Moore in Hannibal the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, was a mistake. The Silence of the Lambs was an Oscar winner across the board. Uh, Foster garnered an Oscar from it as well. Uh, You have Hopkins. The the two of them were just this kind of like first couple of, of detective horror is really what they were. So the minute that you hear of the Silence of the Lambs, you see Jodie Foster's face, especially from the poster, and most of all throughout that motion picture. Well, then they wrote the script which was based on the book by Thomas Harris called Hannibal. If you haven't read the book, the book is extremely dark. And I'm not giving away any spoilers here, but the book ends with basically Clarice Starling and Dr. Lecter falling in love. He has her under some kind of like trance kind of thing, medically induced, if I remember correctly. 
And basically she's with him in South America, if, if that was where the ending took place. And they are in love and they are a couple and they kind of just go off into the moonlight together. Well, Foster balked at that ending. In addition to the really, really dark violence, uh, the pigs, the skinnings, uh, disemboweling, uh, Foster felt that this one was going far more into a horror movie direction and uh, she did not return. Hopkins did, as we know. Ridley Scott came on board to direct. The original director, Jonathan Demme, also turned down the project. The script went through a number of rewrites to try to please Foster to get her to come on board. But in the end, she declined. She felt that you're just not going to fix this and it's not something I want to do. They replaced Foster with Julianne Moore. Kind of a lookalike, maybe. But the problem is it's Julianne Moore and it's not Jodie Foster. So in the opening of the film, when you see Julianne Moore, who is that woman up on the screen that isn't Jodie Foster? Hopkins and Moore did not have that cat and mouse chemistry that Foster and Hopkins had in the original film. And they failed to totally recreate the dynamic. And many people felt that the movie just started going off the rails halfway through. Uh, it was one of the few films I remember that I was, I was actually checking my watch wondering when this thing was going to be over. It was way too long. And look, scripts go through changes to accommodate and, and maybe they should have just gone with a whole new agent instead of bringing back Clarice Starling. They should have kept it dark, but that poses a risk. And this is cinema. Instead of working to make a great film, they work to make a crowd-pleasing one. And it's all about money, which is understandable. In the end, these things have to make money to keep the studios in business. But don't be surprised then when the film fails to live up to expectations or is even rejected by its target audience. And that brings me to Alien 3. Now, I'm Twitter buddies uh, with Carrie Henn, who played Newt in Aliens. And every once in a while, we just exchange some nice tweets back and forth. A very nice person from all her tweets. And Carrie lives a very normal life now. I believe she is an educator, if I'm not mistaken. And she'll do conventions and all that stuff. And for all of us, she will always be Newt. And the original film itself was dark. And I've tweeted about this. And Carrie will sometimes chime in. Because the reason why I connect Carrie to this part of the podcast is killing off Newt at the start of Alien 3 was a major mistake. This is not being edgy. This is not being creative. The killing of Newt at the start of Alien 3, and by the way, she's dead uh, before the opening titles are even over, is a major narrative misstep and a mistake that doomed the franchise, in my opinion. There were a lot of problems with Alien 3, and David Fincher, the director of the film, will be the first one to say that. A lot of studio meddling, and it was just such a mess. But killing off Newt really was a problem. And let me go into why. I mean, the original film, as I had said, was very dark. And Aliens represented the 80s Reagan era. With, with We had to have a big, happy, militaristic ending. It was redemption, and it was atonement, and it was some type of recovery for Ripley, a respite for Ripley. The nightmares ended, and she got a daughter out of the whole thing. Because when we finally got to see deleted scenes, which this scene was not in the theatrical cut, we find that the whole time that Ripley had been floating out in space for almost 60 years, she had a daughter that grew up and died. And now she's come back to Earth to a whole new life and her daughter is gone. Her daughter died at, at a really old age. 
So she has a new child and she missed out on her child, Amanda. And then she finds Newt. Newt is an orphan. She adopts this girl. And Aliens was a completely satisfying sequel and had a completely satisfying ending for everything. Were they thinking of a franchise? Maybe. It reversed it all. And killing Newt and Corporal Hicks, and then at the end, killing Sigourney Weaver's Ripley in a very downbeat, depressing ending. It's just, you you just blew up the franchise. You killed any possibility of a future installment. The failure of Alien 3, well, then it turned into the -the off-the-rails resurrection, if you remember that, with Winona Ryder. And as the studio tried to find a way out of the trap it laid for itself in Alien 3. So you kill off Newt, and then Ripley in the same film, and you expected no response from the audience, or you actually expected a positive response from the audience? Who thought that somehow... This would be a financially successful move to do this in this movie. I'll give you an example. I was represented by an agent at the time at a pretty high agency, and I came to my agent with a fourth installment to Alien, which would correct the errors. And I found a way to bring Newt and Ripley back, and it wasn't over the top. And even though my agent read my treatment and liked it, he said, I'm sorry, Harrison, this franchise is dead. Well, then a couple years later, we got Alien Resurrection. And now we've got what? You know, these prequels. We had Prometheus and Covenant. And now we don't know where anything is going. And then there was supposed to be this other one in an alternate universe where Ripley and Hicks never died. I, I don't know. That's what I mean. By not thinking about things logically and looking at the canon you've already established and what made that canon work, killing off characters or replacing them is not always the smartest idea. How bad is it when right now for the Alien franchise, the best move they could make is take the Sega game called Alien Isolation and turn that into a film? Because the narrative in that video game is superior to anything we got after Aliens. And I think I'm going to wrap it up with probably another great error, other than Jaws the Revenge, which Jaws the Revenge is a complete movie error. And you want to know more about that? All you have to do is just listen to episode two of my podcast. I won't go into all that here. Godzilla, an iconic character known throughout the entire world, is not exactly an icon that you suddenly want to be experimental with or try to elicit joy from an all-new interpretation. The change in Godzilla's design in the 1998 film is akin to making Mickey Mouse more rodent and lifelike. A worldwide brand, long story history franchise, you don't subtly change it all radically and expect it all to be accepted. Godzilla 1998 classifies 100% as cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. Because the filmmakers also had no regard for this franchise and Godzilla's history. In fact, both Devlin and Emmerich, they had contempt for it. Please go back, hear some of my previous podcasts on these films and the cinematic process in which they were made. And most of all, thank you for joining me. And I look forward to talking to you again really soon. Thank you.